0: It's a library unlike any we've had in that you can casually dip in, spend the, literally the rest of your life exploring a topic by following links, links that we made for one another. It blows apart just about every idea about how the world goes together.
1: Welcome to Episode 348 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. David Weinberger from Harvard's Berkman Klein Center and Google joined Christopher this week. As a senior researcher, author, and writer in residence, David has spent much of his time analyzing the Internet and how it has affected society over the years. Christopher and David take some time to discuss David's observations and conclusions, including addressing why the Internet is important and valuable despite its negative characteristics. The conversation also looks on how knowledge in the age of the internet has changed and taken on a whole new meaning, not only in how information is distributed, but in how it's gathered, the extent of its reach, and the expanding responsibility that accompanies the changes. Chris and David also discuss machine learning, David's hopes and concerns, and how it expands innovation. Now here's Christopher with David Weinberger. Welcome
2: to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with David Weinberger, the senior researcher at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center, also writer-in-residence at Google working on machine learning, and... Uh, the author of several books that I've enjoyed, uh, Too Big to Know, Everything is Miscellaneous, and uh, author with several others in The Clue Train Manifesto, and, and another book we'll tease in a second. Welcome to the show, David.
0: Thanks. Great to be here. And by the way, you, you gave me a little bit of uh, of a promotion by making me the senior researcher. Oh. I'm just <laughs> a senior researcher. It's a little bit like the internet.
2: I'm just excited I got <laughs> through that, uh, that without an edit, so I'm going to keep it. Yeah, well, please. Sure. I'll take it. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I really enjoy about reading your work, David, and in the conversations we've had in the past, too, is I feel like whether you're writing or talking, you're often both making it an argument while chatting with the reader or the person you're talking to about the argument you're making. Um, it's sort of, it gets meta in some ways, and I, I
0: always appreciate that, so. I'm not aware of that, but uh, thank you. <laughs>
2: well, I should probably try to make
0: it up, take it up another level.
2: In, in one of the articles that I was reading, for instance, you were talking about how the internet was paved over and then later you came back and said that actually it really wasn't pavement and you're sorry you brought it up at all. Those are the, <laughs> those are the kind of comments I really enjoy. Well, thanks. So um, anyway, uh, you've written some other books too. Uh, those are just the books I read that I listed. I highly recommend those. But I wanted you to validate something now that I've buttered you up and that's that I am correct in capitalizing the word um, the internet when I'm talking to the global internet that connects all the
0: other networks. Yes, you are correct. The style guides say you're, you and I are both wrong and I have a book coming out in May and I lost the argument with my editor both over capitalizing internet and web when talking about the world wide web. Um, the style guides are I th- are just against that idea. I think it's I, – I Grammatically, you can argue it and that's fine. Who cares? Politically, I think it's it's a mistake because we – especially as the internet is in danger of fracturing, if it hasn't already, depending on how you look at it, I think we need to have a more and more vivid sense that there is this thing. It is the internet. It is a single thing that touches everyone and it's the same thing. The experience – our experiences of it are different of course, but it's the same thing that touches everybody. So I, I am very much, even though I lost the argument, I had to put in a footnote, in, it might be the first footnote in the article, in the, in the book, it's an early one anyway, um, acknowledging that I had lost that argument.
2: You say that grammatically, you can argue it. I, frankly, I've never understood it. I mean, I always think of the Taj Mahal. There's one of them, really. I mean, there's facsimiles, um, but there's one, and, and we capitalize it because it's one very special, unique thing. That's a proper noun. I just, I don't, I fundamentally don't understand how the internet is not a proper noun.
0: Well, in the same way, I think, um, and I lose this argument all the time. Um, it's uh, the Earth, is lowercase e and Earth is capital E, and same for the sun, which seems to me hmm. just totally backwards to begin with if you're going to do it, and I don't get it. But there's a certain level of arbitrariness in some of this, Like I, th- I think, in language. Could be. <laughs> I was just going to say, I feel like
2: um, reading your books, you get a sense that there's a lot more arbitrary in our lives than we're prepared to accept and that we realize at first glance.
0: You are absolutely correct. That's a theme throughout my books and my uh, my life. We we normalize everything. We look for generalizations, general principles, um, because in some sense that's how language works and how thought works. But we also have tended to, I don't know, emphasize and valorize those generalities as um, truths as opposed to, and this is unfair, but I'll say it anyway, as opposed to being more or less shortcuts this is one of the reasons why I've gotten so interested in machine learning. And we may come back to that in, in the conversation. But machine learning does not begin with a generalized model of how its domain works. Here's, here's how business works, why there are the following 30 variables and uh, factors, and here's their relationship. You, know, you model the business. We do that and it works pretty well. It works well enough that we continue doing it. But machine learning doesn't work, work that way. Um, it, you give it the data, you don't give it the model, and it creates its own model, and the models that it creates are highly probabilistic and they, they connect individual data points and, and um, can be gigantic webs, lowercase w, by the way, <laughs> gigantic webs of, of um, correlations, probabilistic correlations. Um, it can be so complex we simply cannot understand how some of these systems come up with some some of their results. It does not start with nor does it – always or even that often come up with generalizations, with general principles. It's a really different way of, of thinking about the world. And in some ways, I think it's more accurate than the shortcuts that we take. No offense to Newton. I don't want to argue against Newton's laws because they seem to be pretty good. But
2: they got us pretty far. Um, yeah, we've
0: done okay with them. And he 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 was a fairly bright fella. I gotta give it to him.
2: So we're gonna we're gonna focus on um, something you've given a lot of thought to, which is the internet. And I, I wanted to have you on because I've done almost three hundred and fifty shows now, most of which just take for granted how important the internet is and expanding access to it and things like that. And and one of the things I was recently reflecting on was how I don't know that Done a good job describing why it's important, not just because kids need an education or because Netflix is nice, but why the internet is, is more important for reasons beyond that. Um, and so you've given this a lot of thought, I know, because um, you and I have talked about it <laughs> but, and you've written about it, um, even caring so much about the book that you published it with lowercase i's in it. Um, is, <laughs> So the question I want to pose to you as we get into this is, is there's this question that you said you often get, which, which certainly is headlines in magazines time and time again, is the internet making us dumber? And even beyond that, you know, th- is the internet or Facebook to blame for you know, real harm that's being done in terms of people's uh, anti-vaccine beliefs or um, you know, climate change denialism or things like that? How do you respond to those sorts of questions?
0: Uh, First of all, I I admit that in many ways the internet has been a destructive force. I don't want to argue – I I think it's not only pointless, it's wrong to argue against the sorts of things that people point to. I find that the negatives have been very well covered over the past 10 years. (laughs) Right. Um, There's lots more to say but I don't feel like I have – anything really to contribute to that. I want to acknowledge the, the, the negatives. and I have no problem doing so. But it's, I think it's also, I agree with you about this, Chris, uh, that it's important even while you are pointing out, well, one is pointing out you know, all the negatives, um, that we remembered how radically different and beneficial the net has been, even with all those negatives. Because otherwise, we're in danger. We're in danger of losing it. I mean, it's, it's possible to lose this thing. Something we built. It's something that we can we can lose. I mean, I, I have an odd interest in this, which is not only in the, sort of the social formations um, that are have have been so beneficial to us. They have their negative side. But that have been so beneficial to us, I, it, and I, I don't know that we want to talk about the following. But personally, my major personal interest is in the ways in which the internet has led us to think about the world differently, about how the world is put together and power relationships in in the world, and what it means to be social. And I'll give you a really simple example. I mean, obvious example. I'm not. I actually don't think it's a simple example, but it, <laughs> it's a clear <laughs> one. <laughs> Um, a very complex,
2: clear example.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, just because the ramifications of it are so, so huge and that we, we so take for granted now. Um, the f- uh, hyperlinks, you know, we're now in the 30th year of the World Wide Web. A hugely important component part of it are hyperlinks, right? So um, and they are relatively new. There were systems before. That, in fact, I worked for a company that that made one that enabled people to have hyperlinks, Between, but you know, they didn't have any traction, in part because they it was not these systems were not open systems, Um, and in part because at least in some instances, like the company I worked at, which is called Interleaf in the in the 80s, um, you could do hyperlinks, but you had you had to the creators of the documents, which tended to be, um, you know, technical documentation departments, would had bought this expensive system, they were hard-coded, you had to compile the system. You wanted to add a a new hyperlink, you had to recompile the system and redistribute it. Hyperlinks on the web, um, because of their accessibility, because the web took off so quickly and so much material, they change our idea about how knowledge and ideas go together about whether the right approach to knowledge is always to try to get it concise enough that it can fit in a book that can fit on a shelf. Who gets to control, whether there's sort of a centralized control um, over what counts as included in a topic or related to a topic. In a book, the author is in control of that. Uh, that's fine. That's one model. But it was basically our own, only model. Um, the author gets to say what the book is about. and. Uh, what references he or she is going to make and the links that go out. And those links are printed and so nobody really follows them anyway. And on the web, anybody can link to anything. And we built incredibly quickly this massive, unprecedented in human history, bottom-up, democratic, but also – a little d, of course, um, but also individualistic um, web of connections among ideas, among – among ideas, that's a web of meaning. This is – here's one simple sentence. Here is the – the rest of the web springs out of it because everything on the web is connected. So in a literal sense, you start anywhere. You can get, you can get anywhere. That's why it's important that we talk about the web and the internet, right? Um, and so there is this gigantic uh, web of meaning, a semantic web, if you will, um, that has been built by individuals from many, many, many cultures and backgrounds and interests. We've never had that before. We've never had anything like it. And anybody can speak, and anybody can link and draw the connections that she, that she wants. So this is a different idea about w- what knowledge is like, what meaning is like, mm-hmm. what it means to know something. It's a, a tool like we have never, ever had. It's not simply that the internet is a is an information library, the way that it early on was thought of and, and talked about. It's, not, it's a library unlike any we've had in that you can casually dip in, spend the, literally the rest of your life exploring a topic by following links. Links that we made for one another. It it's a, it's blows apart just about every idea about how the world goes together.
2: Well, it seems like it's. You know, I, I'm, it's funny because the two words that come to mind are both democratic and anarchistic. In terms of um, it, it's, it's choose your own adventure. Um, one of the one of the things I I think about almost every time I'm in a room of people is 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 one of the things I learned I believe from reading you, which was that the in a, in a group of people, the smartest the smartest person in the room is the room. I think is the phrase actually, yeah, and so
0: subtitle uh, of one of my books.
2: So um is that the too big to know? Yeah, it's part
0: yeah. of the, it's a very long subtitle, but that's buried in right. there somewhere. Right. <laughs> so
2: I'm pretty sure I read the whole book, not just the subtitle. But <laughs>
0: stopping at the subtitle would have been fine. Oh, sure. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, No, but the, the, the the sense in my mind is, is that, you know, there's a difference between in the past. I think one could accumulate knowledge by locking oneself into a very large library and just learning and learning and learning. And increasingly we've gone beyond that. And it's it's not even about what a single person can accumulate in terms of knowledge. That's very limiting to think of it in that way. and, and to, to some extent, when you go back to what's the difference between the 80s and now, I feel like there's just this difference of you really need to get a group of people together to to do anything interesting, because you, you just didn't expect them one single person to have that kind of knowledge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, we spent a few thousand years with the um, assumption based upon the necessity uh, that... The, the way to know something is to get it into a single skull, a single person project that became a more pronounced tendency as time went on. And that that requires a very rigorous discipline over topics. I mean, how long can a book be? Right? A book was, and in many ways still is, I guess, the fundamental unit of knowledge, and we're going through a phase shift here. but um, Books are really, really short, and anybody who's written a book knows that you You have to be uh, very disciplined about what you're going going to talk about, which means you can't talk about most of. And it turns out that once you take the the paper out of the system of knowledge, which the internet and and then the web very effectively did, that a lot of the ideas about knowledge turn out to be based upon the limitations of paper. So, for example. Uh, once you publish something on paper, you really can't change it. It just settles it, but knowledge has also has had this character property of being the stuff that we have settled on as a culture. Um, if it's still being debated, um, we say, well, no, we don't know yet. Once it's but once it's settled, then it can become knowledge. Um, we've had to filter. Knowledge has been filtered, and right from the very Greek, ancient Greek origins of it, knowledge was a category that came later than the category of opinion Um, and it was the set of um, opinions worth believing in the the west that's been a guiding uh, property but it means that knowledge is always filtered but books also are highly filtered very few of them get published relatively and very few of them can fit in any library and there's no library that can fit all of them no physical library can fit all of them libraries have to throw out books I, I say I say this is somebody who spent five years managing a um, or co-directing a library innovation lab. I, so I don't mean to slight libraries; it's a fact of physical life. Libraries have to throw out some books or sell them or whatever in order to make room for the new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, knowledge has always been filtered, and I, I don't think that it's an accident that the properties of knowledge have also been the properties of paper. You take those out, and knowledge really begins to change. It becomes something that multiple people do um, in networks by building networks, connected networks of knowledge or webs of knowledge. But one of the really – one of the biggest changes that I think we are now living through and is making us very nervous and for understandable reasons is that when you have a web of knowledge, that web consists of differences among the people. And sometimes there are very friendly differences in which one person knows about what topic or whatever. But inevitably, they are also webs of – differences of ideas, they, there's disagreement, the knowledge never settles and we look out across this field and we see disagreement but that's in fact – the dream of knowledge is that everybody agrees with it. The fact of knowledge has <laughs> always been – that that has never been the case and I'll give you a positive example of this, I mean scholarship. Um, we, I think we are quite happy. I assume we are quite happy to have traditional networks of knowledge. We didn't call them that but that's what they were. Traditional networks of knowledge among scholars of say Shakespeare who spend – we don't want them all to agree. We want them to disagree. Uh, we hope that they're you know, civil and the rest of that stuff but um, that disagreement is where all of the interest is. It turns out that that's not just a humanities thing though. It turns out that the fact. And we don't like it. I understand that. Um, The fact is that we don't and never will all agree about anything. But now we're on a single thing, the Internet, where we see those differences and we see that they don't get resolved. And it's very disturbing to us.
2: Yeah, I think one of the one of the challenges that we have is is where that, that spills over. And I think this comes down to whether you're talking about again, like anti vaccination um confusion, um or even even, even disagreement over basic facts in, in politics today. And in part because we're in an area I think in which people have a sense that um that one can just um, you you can find evidence for whatever you want, and we haven't yet adjusted. Um, people haven't adjusted to the reality in which um, you have you have a higher responsibility if you're making an argument than just saying I found a convenient fact. Um, you have to you have to go beyond that if we're gonna um, you know have do interesting things as human beings.
0: The, the optimist in me, which is consistently that person, is consistently wrong. Unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, so feel free to slap them down. The optimist in me says that we are at an evolutionary uh, – I hate to use the phrase – inflection point. Um,
2: would you say the paradigm is inflecting? <laughs> <So, laughs>
0: inflecting paradigms is um, – it would be a great traffic sign, don't you think? Warning yes. inflecting. <laughs> Uh Paradigm inflection ahead. Where, And I think there's some evidence to be – somewhat optimistic about this where we have to be more meta. Um, we have to be more aware because – you know, I hate to say it but the old paradigm – now you've got me using the paradigm <laughs> word. The old paradigm of knowledge was not actually – because once something is settled, it's settled. It's known. It's done. You don't bring it up again unless there's some good reason to. Um, everybody agrees which of course they never did. You just couldn't hear the people who disagreed because they, they were disenfranchised. They didn't everybody. get their paper. Yeah. And so we had an illusion that there was unanimity uh, around um, knowledge and so that lets you believe things without having to be very meta about it. You know, it's just just true and it's just right and everybody knows. Now, the conversations I think have to, really should is what I mean because I don't know that they will, become more aware about the role of evidence, less certain Um, about one's own position and and more humble. I think there's evidence that in many areas that's happening, there's also pretty clear evidence that there are lots of places where people are beginning becoming even bigger, let's say, jerks. That's not the technical Mm -hmm. term I would use, but uh, bigger jerks than they ever were. Uh, I'll tell you a secret hope of mine about machine learning. If we accept... What seems to me to have been true and others to have been true for thousands of years, which is that we understand our minds, our, let's just say, minds, um, often on the basis of using the metaphors that we gain from the tools that we use. Then if the new tool is becoming Um, And we certainly saw this in the computer era when suddenly everything about our minds and the world became information. The term information became a a hugely important term when it had not been one, uh, even though people can't tell you what it means. And I don't mean in the information <laughs> science sense, I just, you know, it, it's a placeholder word for something anyway. So we've seen the computer error that we've refashioned our idea of ourselves in terms of information and inputs and outputs and so forth. And if the, if the same thing happens with machine learning in a particular way, machine learning is always probabilistic. It's always it, – it relies upon measures of confidence in order to do its work. Um, and. If we begin to understand ourselves along the machine learning model, then maybe a good thing from my point of view would be if we picked up on the – all statements have a confidence level that we recognize that they're all uh, uncertain.
2: Right. I actually think that's really, really valuable. I'll tell you what I got out of it is something that I do think a lot about, which is this idea of how much confidence do I have in this thing that I'm saying. And if I'm speaking to people that are asking me for advice, I'll often say, well, like I think this thing and I'm very confident about it. And I'm about to say this other thing later in the conversation. And I'll say, look, I'm much less confident about this, in part because if I'm wrong about this, you shouldn't assume I'm wrong about the other thing because I'm more likely to be wrong about this thing. It's it's hard to know these things.
0: Right, so uh, yeah, so that's – and also you are an honest and competent um, consultant and advisor and I say this having known you for a while. And, well, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And yet – so here's one of the popular negative things about, to say about the internet, which is true, which is the internet is an attention economy and you gain attention because it seems to be a trick of the mind. This is in parentheses. One of the things that's been fascinating to me over the past few decades is – because I'm old – is watching the extent to which the idea that we are rational creatures, that this is our destiny and our being, seeing it eroded, that idea eroded. So by behavioral economics and much more in which basically the brain now seems to many of us to be all optical illusions all the time except they're cognitive illusions. Nevertheless, um, one of the optical illusions is that we pay attention to strong or outrageous statements. It's not hard to see why. And so the internet economy, as many have pointed out, is an attention economy in which outrageousness is rewarded. That goes against the um, hope that we will become a more humble, measured, uh, meta-creatures. and then I want to say the third thing is, well, you know, there's something – there's sort of a Hegelian uh, dialectical synthesis of, of this, which I think is one of the – maybe one of the dominant modes of – I don't know, uh, that you find on the internet, which is people who assert things in a very overly bold voice do so knowingly and are received they are heard as purposefully, knowingly overstating um, because it's funny often. You see this in places uh, like um, like Reddit um, where it's a pretty f- common form of expression. And so it, it's both the attention-grabbing overstatement but done archly often with a signal, sometimes very implicit just by the subreddit that you're in. Um, that, no, we know that this this is just uh, – we're just being outrageous because there's some truth in what we say, but it's also pretty funny to talk this way. We mm-hmm. can spawn a really funny thread if we talk this way.
2: Right, and I think some of it is also – I think there's a sense of – Frustration of being unheard. Um, you know, I, I feel like we see this around, for instance, the work I'm doing right now around 5G, where we become extremely snarky because, you know, honestly, part of it is that we feel the expectation that if we say smart things and we figure out smart things, people should listen to us. And then if they don't, <laughs> we start to feel frustrated. And then you, you kind of lash out in that same way. But, you know, I think if you go back, you know 25 20 years ago people didn't have an expectation that they had any means of, of influencing those sorts of events unless they were born into the right family or went to the right schools or something like
0: that yeah no, absolutely uh, one of my deep concerns about my early views of the internet and of the web in particular which you know goes back to early 90s mid 90s and views that i still hold many of and have expressed some of is that um I was, uh, at the time, I was a middle-aged, middle-class, well-educated white guy. Uh, and so the internet was like a dream for me. Um, I had, it was like made for me because in some ways it was made by people like me. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the early web um, fulfilled because it was filled, you know, initially it was not poor people and it was uh, mainly um, Americans and other well-developed Western countries and the like. Um,
2: People spoke English, had a certain it, set of yep. expectations and knowledge.
0: Yep, yep. Tons of very technical and highly uh, professional and educated. You know, um, it was a Internet of privilege, and that allowed me a certain set of fantasies, which were fulfilled at the time, but were destined. And I did know this and write about it, but it, not sufficiently. Uh, fantasies that were. You know, not going to last as the web reached to people who weren't like me.
2: One of the things that that I think about is as we accelerate that forward to some extent, um, this idea of people who are like me or have like interests being able to to gather around. You know, when I I told you I wanted to talk a little bit about what we think the future might be, and, and you said, um, like an intelligent person, um, I have no interest <laughs> in in being making predictions. Well, it's not, <laughs> um, not that I don't have an interest. I have tons right, of sure. interest in doing it. I, I just maybe you've learned enough lessons.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, especially since the book that I that I, that's coming out, Everyday Chaos. Sorry, that's a plug. Available for pre order now.
2: From your local bookstore. So the prediction I want to I want to okay. sort of root around in is this idea that you know if you look back to thirty years ago, um, something like CRISPR comes around. This idea of being able to edit the the um, the DNA and make dramatic changes, um, which you know is still a work in progress in many ways. Nonetheless, um, it happens. Probably someone writes about it in a journal, and maybe over the next six months, some people read the journal in other places, and they iterate. And three years later, those, some more people learn about that in a different journal and now I, I feel like instead it's more like as as a lab in south korea is iterating there's a lab you know in california that's iterating and 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 over the course of a year you have 20 or 30 years of scientific progress because of the internet and and, and when people talk about the internet as though um you know it's it's only a form for clicking outrageous headlines you know i think about things like that and in just the way that um i i'm really fascinated to see what happens. And, and this will be good and bad. I mean, change um, you know, sped up just means we get the good and the bad faster. Um, but I, I feel like when I look at the history of innovation, and so much of it comes from different groups learning about different ideas, if we just have so much more of that, I feel like we're going to see much more change in very interesting ways. So I'm curious what you make of that, if I'm missing anything.
0: Or- 100%. The only things I would add to it I know you agree with, which is uh, that this is not simply a quickening of pace of existing processes, but there's so much sharing and collaboration um, that it ha- it's, it is the networking of knowledge right in front of our eyes. One of the things I think is hugely important and is obvious. This is why I, I don't make predictions. Um, I mean, I really try not to. Mm-hmm. Um, my actual interest is in sort of trying to as, a, as writers and trying to read what is um, already here to show often why it's why it's deeply weird.
2: You, you mean why, even if you knew everything that was happening 100 years ago, you wouldn't have guessed we'd end up here? Like, it's not a, we weren't de- destined to end up where we are. That's oh, is that what so, you're saying?
0: Well, it, it's so, yes, it's so wildly um, contingent. Uh, But that's not the sense that we've had traditionally we we certainly recognize the contingency but we also think that there are um, we look to the general rules and we look to the trends and it's just you know history is nothing but a series of of unpredictable unlikely events i mean wildly improbable events so one of the things that to me is is really exciting um that is increasing the pace of, of innovation is our explicit and sometimes implicit uh, attempts at making things interoperable um, that is you know interoperability as you well know is when uh, an item from one system turns out to be usable in another system often in an unpredictable way um, and so we are increasing the unpredictability every time of the of the world in very fruitful ways as we increase the interoperability, which the internet has done incredibly well for um, the sorts of materials that it deals with. Every time somebody comes up with a new data standard or a protocol for sharing information or a set of services or an open platform that makes – Or a,
2: a video that, that tells you how to like – hook these two things together right i mean like sure. just do it yourself type stuff
0: yeah, absolutely i mean it's actually a great example because all of that stuff is is an accelerant and what it accelerates is not only um, knowledge and new services and products and lets p- gives people control over the things that they use that they didn't create they can make something new out of it or you know tune it to the way that they want all of this we take for granted we take it for granted even in video games you know video games <laughs> One of the earliest examples of, of, of reconfigurable systems, um, modding, where you could take a game and change the – the game makers enable you, let you, and sometimes enable you by giving you tools to change their own game. I mean it, it's um, it's very different from a Henry Ford model of how you build a car. You know, <laughs> right. 19 years of the thing, Model T didn't change.
2: Yeah, or my Toyota today. Same. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Try, yeah. To,
0: right, try to mod that. Um, I
2: just wanted to stop beeping at me when it's below 37 degrees outside. I live in Minnesota; it's always below 37 degrees. Stop yelling at me, car. Well, no, Sorry. that's your fault. My, my you, could, you, you could move.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that really, that's that's just shameful, Chris. Sorry. Um, yeah. So the interoperability um, is an accelerant for this sort of it. May, it makes the world less predictable, and that in, increases the pace at which we innovate. And we have not, there's so many efforts in so many areas to increase interoperability, we call it different names. But it, it's like, I'm gonna go back to Newton, who I've sort of mentioned a couple times. But, you know, uh, gravity you know, it's pretty good universal law of gravity seems to be pretty much right. Um, mm-hmm. Newton discovered these causal relationships, but with interoperability, interoperability is also a way in which two things can interact, but we get to design the rules. We get to decide how these things are going to be able to interact. And that is is taking us to a world that we cannot possibly, possibly predict. And it's a dangerous world too. I mean CRISPR is a wildly – has wildly horrible applications It's possible, right?
2: Absolutely. It's one of the things I worry a lot about. I mean I view it as um, perhaps – perhaps as a result of the specific sci-fi that I've read. You know, I view it as, as if it doesn't kill us off or kill us off in sufficient numbers, it will give us the tools to avoid killing ourselves off with climate change <laughs> because of ah. um, the ability to, to change organisms to remove carbon from the air and oh. things like that. But but yeah, I mean, I live in, I'm, I'm, I know that in my lifetime um, there's a, if CRISPR provides the kind of things we expect it will, that terrorist groups will be finding ways of trying to do horrible things with biological Uh, Weapons, you know, and so it's it's a very scary future, frankly.
0: Uh, Yes, it's horrifying, terrifying, Mm -hmm. Um, and makes you know um, concern about the internet seem like small potatoes.
2: Potatoes, still pay attention to, but uh, without the internet, none of this stuff happens. Though, I mean, I think yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's an excellent point. I thought you you were going to suggest that CRISPR could save us from climate change because we would be able to to develop gills. No, um,
2: I I would love that though. I think I might take that over wings if I if I had my my choice. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> well, you know, I think maybe less crowded down there because everyone else is going to take the wings. Uh, okay,
0: so here's the next sci-fi novel.
2: <laughs> well, let me ask you though about this, right? I mean, so in 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 one of the articles that you provided that we'll include in our link, um, you, you write about um, you know, I think. A person like me might just think um, that when you think about machine learning, um, and I think about just generally, which isn't machine learning, smart machines, the difference between Deep Blue, which was IBM's effort to, um, to win chess, and in AlphaGo, they, they seem like they're both just really intelligent machines that can do things that I cannot do, or in fact, any human can do. But they're, they're fundamentally different. And I'm curious if you can tell me why it matters that one uses machine learning and the other doesn't.
0: With traditional computers, a developer comes up with a model of the world—the pieces that go together um, and how they relate, which things matter, and how, what their relationships are—and that's always um, that goes along with our old idea of knowledge. Uh, it's a it has to be a very reductive idea. That's why we make spreadsheets for our businesses, but nobody—you know—if the factory catches fire, nobody blames the spreadsheet, I mean, nor should they. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they work, but uh, they're better than nothing. But They are idealized visions of the factors, you know, isolated set of factors.
2: And perhaps hiding patterns that we can't see because of the way we construct these models. Um,
0: (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. So instead, with machine learning, you um, provide data. The data, you don't tell the machine, you don't give the machine a model of the domain. Um, You give it the data, all it knows are the numbers. It doesn't know, has no idea about what those numbers stand for. And it iterates and finds correlations, relationships among those numbers, building um, vast, intricate networks in which one data point may be connected to thousands of others, um, with weights about you know their probability, likelihood, um, resulting in neural networks uh, in, that produce usable results. That's why we use them. But in some instances, do so through through networks that are simply too complex for human brains to understand them. This, at its best, when it works, and it, I had to put in the disclaimer, there's terrible dangers in this as well. The One that is most often talked about, which is, uh, is appropriate, is that because machine learning makes models based upon data, and because we live in an unjust world, that data reflects injustice. And so the models, unless carefully managed, um, will reflect and maybe amplify those those biases the biases in the data, which are biases reflect biases in in the world
2: and and to be very clear about what you 're driving at there the the fact that for instance. If I'm a youth and I am engaged in shoplifting, I am more likely to be arrested if I'm a person of color. Therefore, um, the the system that's looking at the data will start to assume people of color may be more likely to commit
0: crimes. Um, Yes. I'll give you another quick example, a standard sort of example. If you are using machine learning to cull resumes who should get an interview with a human and you use existing data, that existing data more than regrettably, um, women will not correlate as highly with high with senior management jobs as men will in almost all industries and so the machine will learn from that and it will learn that women don't correlate very well with high uh, with uh, senior Mm -hmm. management jobs so that has to be carefully controlled for there's a huge amount of work that's being done on this which is entirely appropriate nevertheless the sorts of models that machine learning makes seems seem to me in their architecture to be more uh, truer representations of how the world works. Just all of these little pieces that have influences. I mean, it's, uh, back to Newton, everything affects everything else. Everything has a gravitational pull on everything else. Machine learning gets closer to, to the complexity that um, is the world. That's why it works better. It's why we use it. And if we can internalize that model, I think we will be better off.
2: Well, I will look forward to learning more about that in May with a book <laughs> called Everyday Chaos. <laughs>
0: that was smoothly done. Oh, yes. I'm,
2: I'm nothing but smooth. <laughs> I've taken up more of your time than, um, than I asked you for. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to talk about these things, and uh, I'm sure we'll be um, developing some more questions for you in the future. So uh, thanks for coming on.
0: Uh, thank you. I look forward to, to seeing
1: you. That was Christopher and author, senior researcher, and Google writer-in-residence, David Weinberger. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on important research from all of our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Follow us on Instagram. We're ILSR74. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to episode 348 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.